You could be forgiven if at the end of every day, you need an hour or two just to get through the news of that day. I work in the news, and I feel this way a lot. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. So on the weekend, we like to give you a little bit more of the big picture, set you up for the week, and bring you some stories you might have missed while everything else was flying by at warp speed. And so we are going to start this week with the World Cup. It began on Thursday, and it's arguably the biggest sporting event in the world. It's also a multi-billion dollar business with TV distribution deals, sponsorships, and economic development. Oh, and corruption. Lots of corruption. The story of FIFA, the world's soccer organization, is also a story of bribery, international intrigue, the former spy who compiled a dossier on President Trump, and a guy who walked around with a parrot on his shoulder. All of this is real, and it's part of the new book Red Card, which focuses on the 2015 case in which U.S. prosecutors went after FIFA and indicted 14 people. Ken Bensinger wrote the book, and he joins me. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. I want to start with a story um, that sounds kind of benign, but it's important. So we're going to go back to 2010, mm-hmm. and there's this guy, Chuck Blazer, who is a very colorful figure in U.S. soccer. He decides to deposit a check in his Merrill Lynch account here in New York City. It sounds like such a super normal thing to do. What is happening? Why is it so important? Chuck Blazer was the highest-ranking American soccer official probably ever in world soccer. Um, he was a soccer dad from suburban New York from Westchester County who climbed to the very highest heights of world soccer, was one of the 24 most powerful men on FIFA's executive committee. And little known to 99.9% of the soccer world, he was also incredibly corrupt. That check that he deposited was, in fact, a piece of bribe money he had, to, he had received in exchange for his vote to give South Africa the 2010 World Cup. He'd done that years earlier, but the money had been coming to him in little drips and drabs over the years. And that check he deposited into his account in Merrill Lynch rather than sending it to his secret offshore bank accounts in the Caribbean. And as a result, an IRS agent saw the account number, saw that it was an American bank, and used that to to start the first subpoena against Chuck Blazer, a secret subpoena. And that subpoena opened up the case against Chuck Blazer and allowed the IRS to grab him and secretly corner and flip him um, in a building next to the Trump Tower in late 2011. One of the reasons I have you on the show is not just because this book is so fascinating, but because so much of the prosecution against FIFA and the people involved comes down to things like taxes and bank accounts and following the money. How did U.S. IRS agents and FBI agents put this prosecution together. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. This is, this is really a money laundering case more than anything else. And it just happens to be in soccer? It happens to be at soccer. I mean, you know, um, if, if you read this book looking for um, reports about matches and who scored what goal, you're going to be disappointed. But if you want to find out the fascinating world of how you can trace money all around the globe through, through correspondent banks and transfers through the clearance house interbanking transfer system, then, well, you're, you're set. <laughs> And the most dramatic example of that was a Brazilian who was convicted, and they showed how money started here, went to this company, they showed the contract, then they showed the money go to this place, they showed another contract, and you followed around until finally the last step, it ends up in a Morgan Stanley account in the U.S., 
then they show the debit card activity of that Morgan Stanley account, and they show how this guy who was the account holder went and bought $50,000 worth of stuff at Hermes with money from that account within Whoops. weeks of receiving it. One of the things I think that struck me as an American who pays sort of glancing attention to soccer, to football, um, unlike the rest of the world, was how brazen some of the schemes involved are. For example, just the outright bribery. Can you explain a little bit about how that works, how, say, the World Cup ends up in Russia or in South Africa and the the vote buying that happened? Yes, yeah, so that's one Probably the most high-profile kind of bribery is the vote buying, right? You have um, different uh, bodies within FIFA that are in charge of making these huge decisions for the sport, like where the World Cup is held. And until recently, that was that was determined by a small group of people. And so those countries that wanted to win had a very limited target list. They knew exactly who needed they needed to get the money to. And so then it was just a matter of finding them and meeting them in a quiet place when no one was around and offering them whatever they wanted, money, um, gifts, women, artworks, whatever it was to get them to to commit their vote, right? And these are the accusations levied against bidders in almost every round for the last 10, 15, or 20 years. So that's one kind of bribery. But there's a whole other set of bribery that ends up becoming the nucleus of the U.S. case, and one that's much less understood. And that kind of bribery is what we can think of as a, the commercial aspect of soccer or football, as the rest of the world calls it, and that is where the real money is, which is television and sponsorship, right? This is the golden goose soccer, something that everyone in the world wants to watch. There's about twice as many people who are followers of the faith of football than the faith of Catholicism, right? <laughs> Which you out, you lay out as sort of using Brazil as, a, as, as the description, yeah. Right, Brazil is, is, the, is the largest uh, Catholic country in the world, but they like football more. And so the television rights are, are very valuable, right? And soccer administrators, the officials who run the different Soccer associations in every country and every continent figured out that if that some people would be willing to pay them under the table bribes in exchange for very sweet deals for those rights, and that's the great um, sort of soccer corruption that no one really understood until this case broke broke it open. It was just the day after day bribe payments that sort of undermined the whole sport and were lower profile perhaps than where the World Cup is, but didn't happen every six years or every four years. They happen every day. I'm talking with Ken Bensinger, the author of Red Card. Hi there. I think if the majority of Americans know anything about FIFA, they know that it's corrupt. Mm. Why did it take these sort of slogs through everyday transactions and an IRS agent, an FBI agent well-versed in you know prosecuting the mafia to actually make a prosecution stick? It's hard for Americans, it's hard for us to understand the, the political influence that soccer has in the rest of the world. Um, in other countries, it's sort of as if you could mash all the U.S. sports leagues into one, hockey, baseball, basketball, and football. If you could smash them all into one thing, it starts to give you an idea of how powerful it is. And in these countries, they're frankly afraid. You really sense that politicians are afraid. Law enforcement is afraid to dip their toe in this. And the history of criminal investigations of what has been sort of the open secret of corruption at FIFA is incredibly limited. No one was willing to do it because the political costs were too high. We're in the U.S. The truth is soccer is maybe number four, or number five sport. And so that, in a sense, gave the political cover for an American investigation to open. You know, they weren't going to get hauled before a Senate committee to, demanding to know why they were messing with the golden, you know, this golden prize. That is also the knock against this case, that maybe the Americans were somehow 
jealous or they felt out of the loop. Mm -hmm. You write about this a little bit, the sort of animosity toward American law enforcement. It was like, oh, well, you guys don't really get soccer anyway. Yeah, that's right. And it's not the truth. The FBI agents who opened the case knew almost nothing about soccer, didn't care about it, didn't hate it either, really had no opinion about it. And um, in that sense, it's a bit prosaic and a little bit uh, mundane. It opened, the case opened because they had a good tip and they were interested in it. And that's all. they just ran with that. So the U.S., hey, 2026 World Cup, is that a good thing? I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I mean, as a, as a soccer fan, to some degree, I'm happy because I'll get to take my kids, you know. It's a lot easier than probably hauling them across the world to Morocco to go to an event. So that, on, a, on a very parochial level, that's good. But uh, I think it's also good because I, th- I think for the sport, if Morocco had won, it would, it would look very suspicious. It would look like another black mark on the sport. Um, and instead bring it to the U.S. and to Canada and to Mexico is a sign that they're headed maybe in the right direction. The U.S. was presenting a cleaner kind of bid and we're, and we're trying to show sort of a transparent way to do things. So I think that's in the long run probably uh, good for the sport. Um, and I think for FIFA, which has serious financial problems now in the wake of this criminal investigation, all these sponsors pulled out um, and then um, all these legal bills from American law firms piled up, they're hugely in the red, which is something that never used to happen. They need they need a, a, an economic winner, and there's almost no question that a tournament in in North America is going to make a ton of money. Is FIFA less corrupt now? Um, maybe marginally. You know, I think that this, I think it's important to think of the way that the prosecutors did about this case, which is this is like a large enterprise with a deep rooted criminal culture. Essentially, um, doesn't mean that that soccer is um, intrinsically corrupt, but it has sort of been infected as a way to think of it with a kind of corruption or a kind of cancer of corruption. And this, you could think of this as like that first round of chemotherapy, right? And you sort of knock out the cancer, but it doesn't mean that the um, the cancer cells aren't circulating in the blood and that, this, that the culture of people believing that soccer is some sort of you know, land grab where they can make as much money as they want. Those that whole culture has to change, and you can't do it overnight because when you knocked off the head, the, bla- the bladders of the world, the next people to come up kind of came up in the same culture. To to change that's going to take a long time. And I don't think I think a lot of people said, "Well, this investigation happened. Why isn't soccer clean yet?" And I think the answer is, you know, no one in in the case ever expected it to be clean overnight. They expected it sort of. If you, another metaphor might be a sick tree, you cut off the rotten part and hope that it regrows and gets strong again. Ken Bensinger is an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed and the author of Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lizzie, for having me. On this show, we love numbers. They're kind of our thing. So let's hear this week's news by the numbers, the food chain edition, with Marketplace's Sarah Menendez and Eliza Mills. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 4.57. That's how many millions of dollars the Cheesecake Factory owes Southern Californian janitors. The California Labor Commission ruled earlier this week that Cheesecake and its janitorial subcontractors were committing wage theft. That $4.5 million will pay 559 janitors their lost wages plus a fine. And this isn't the first time the Cheesecake Factory has been charged with labor violations. In 2007, janitors won $14 million in damages from the chain's subcontractor. 150. 
That's how many potholes pizza chain Domino's has filled in Athens, Georgia. Paving for pizza is a marketing ploy from the delivery brand. So far, they've filled potholes in five U.S. municipalities and emblazoned the new concrete with the Domino's logo. Domino's says its infrastructure grants are a way to save delivery pizzas from bumpy roads. But some critics say local governments should maintain their own roads. Ten. That's how many fiscal quarters IHOP, or should we say IHOB, has seen sales declines. Maybe that's why the pancake restaurant is on an aggressive branding kick. The B in IHOB stands for burgers, apparently. A lot of brands went after IHOP on Twitter. Burger King teased it would be changing its name to Pancake King any day now. What's everyone got against breakfast anyway? I love pancakes. Bring back the pancakes. Staying with the news. Chairman Kim and I just signed a joint statement in which he reaffirmed his unwavering commitment to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We also agreed to vigorous negotiations to implement the agreement as soon as possible. And he wants to do that. It's been a busy week in global politics. The G7 plus President Trump's meeting with North Korea's Kim Jong-un which got us thinking about diplomacy and negotiation, how to do it, what to avoid, and the cost of getting it wrong. Joining me for more on this is Maurice Schweitzer. He's a professor at the Wharton School of Business and the co-author of Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's be sort of meta for a second. In politics, work, home, marriage, whatever – Uh, What is the basis of negotiation? Well, the key idea is that we're constantly oscillating back and forth as both friends and foes. We have common interests and we have competing interests. And that's true whether we're at home, collaborating with our spouses, whether we're at work, working on a group project, but then competing for recognition or promotion or raises. And it's certainly true on the international stage as we see our relationships, say, with Canada or China or even North Korea. We're both collaborating to achieve some common goals and we're competing on others. When you mention international politics, does negotiation look different there or are the fundamental principles still the same? Well, there are a lot of key fundamental principles that apply broadly. We need to prepare for negotiations. We need to make sure we build rapport. There are a lot of key fundamentals that are common across every domain. There are some things that are different. Uh, you know, one thing, the stakes can be quite high on the international stage. Sure. The arc is also much longer. So we have a, a past history and we have a future that are likely to outlast the particular actors in that negotiation – And in many cases, on the international stage, there are many different players. These are almost always multi-party negotiations with many people, many countries. They might not even be present, but they're all going to be affected by that negotiation. Well, so in that case, how much does an individual leader's management style play into how they negotiate? Does it matter when we are talking about something that could conceivably last for a century or more? It does. And I think the, the personalities matter. And I think as we saw in this case, there's something very special about a face-to-face meeting. 
where the way we behave face-to-face is quite different from how we might behave at a distance. And at a distance, we might be more critical. We might use harsher language. But face-to-face, most people, and I think that includes our current leadership, uh, most people are far more conciliatory, much friendlier face-to-face. So I want to ask you about this aspect of sort of competition or cooperation, but I'm going to read a quote from the president uh, about his management style saying, it's give and take, but it's got to be mostly take because you can't give, you got to mostly take. Um, can you mostly take or or does there have to be give? Well, <laughs> um, you know, you can't, both sides can't mostly take. Uh, that doesn't That's a zero-sum game. Uh, at some point, and I think... You know, here's something that's interesting that that you know the, the sort of this premise of being a friend and a foe is that we're both collaborating and competing, and we're scanning our environment in every situation that we're in. We're trying to look for cues that give us a sense of, hey, are we mostly cooperating here or are we mostly competing here? Uh, which one? How do I oscillate between these? Uh, which one's going to dominate? And I think you know Donald Trump often views the world. Uh, through a very competitive landscape. So the Republicans versus the Democrats or me versus somebody else or in trade, somebody's winning, somebody's losing. Uh, so I think that uh, I think that quote that you just read reflects uh, a sort of, you know, pulling the steering wheel toward the competitive point. And that makes negotiations difficult. I mean, it's, it's only made the NAFTA negotiations, the TPP negotiations, our relations with the G7 our relations with Canada, it, it makes things much harder because when we point ourselves toward competition, we're likely to get a reciprocal push. What is the cost of screwing up a negotiation, getting it wrong? Well, there are a lot of costs to getting it wrong. The, it could be that we just miss opportunities. So it could be there's an opportunity for peace or there's an opportunity for greater collaboration, we just miss that opportunity. Um, It could also be worse than that. That is, we start off in one path and we take a potential collaboration and we wreck those chances. So I think, you know, most recently, our relationships with Canada have substantially deteriorated uh, where I think part of it reflects a failure in perspective taking where the Trump administration thought that we should rebalance trade with Canada, slapping tariffs on their aluminum and steel. The justification for doing that was made on national security grounds. And I think we failed to appreciate how how upset the Canadians were in that they saw us as close allies. They've fought shoulder to shoulder with us throughout many conflicts. And now to be perceived as a national security threat, which is how we technically classify them to put on those tariffs, I think we fail to appreciate how how much relationship rupture that is. You know, one of the uh, subtitles of your book is how to succeed at both when you're talking about when to cooperate and when to compete. And I guess I'm wondering what are the takeaways that we should think about when we're negotiating in terms of how to succeed – at negotiations in all aspects of our lives. Well, I think one thing to recognize is uh, this sort of first step that we're both collaborating and competing. So in every relationship, you know, with your spouse, there's still some competition about 
who's emptying the dishwasher, who's waking up with the kids in the middle of the night. <laughs> True. We have some elements of competition. And, and, to, and to gloss over that is to fail to recognize that there is a more nuanced relationship that we have. And I think with our relationships with, you know, China, is China a competitor or collaborator? And the answer is they're really both. And we need to figure out what framework we want to use rather than thinking about some simple phrase of, you know, China's our rival uh, that might that might miss opportunities for collaboration. Maury Schweitzer is a professor at the Wharton School of Business and co-author of Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. There's a shortage of truck drivers right now. With the economy in an upswing, there are more goods in demand than there are people to transport them. People like John Lex. We called him while he was on the road in Monroe, Georgia. My LinkedIn account every day is blown up. Hey, John, do you keep your employment options open? Would you be interested in talking to one of our recruiters? Would you be this and that? God forbid something happened with my job today. I could have another job tomorrow. He's been a truck driver for 32 years. Today, he drives for Walmart. I drive a a Freightliner, about 70 feet long. You get paid to see the country. My regular route will have me anywhere down in the southeast of the United States. And the roads look a lot different than they did just a few years ago. Yeah, the economy's booming. Just go out to your interstate and you will see truck after truck after truck after truck which means carriers are going all in to get drivers to work for them. Companies across the states are increasing rates, uh, paying their drivers more, uh, giving them more perks like, you know, nicer trucks to drive. Which has a ripple effect. Carriers are charging more to ship goods, and companies that rely on shipping, from services like Amazon Prime to the makers of Cheerios, say the rise in freight costs means they're raising prices for consumers. Avery Weiss is vice president of trucking research at FTR Transportation Intelligence. Welcome. Thanks, Lizzie. It's great to be here. So let's do a little basic economics here for a second. Right now, the demand for truck drivers outstrips the supply of truck drivers. What is going on in that equation? It's always difficult, even in more stable times, to have a good, steady driver supply. But when freight demand is strong and when it's unexpectedly strong, as we're seeing now, then things get very tight. If you are not a trucker or not you who looks at this industry and you're thinking about how this ripples out across the economy, where does one see it? Where does this show up? Freight demand rises when activities that drive freight improve, so manufacturing, construction, and so on. It becomes a a real quandary, however, because the very labor pools that you're trying to draw from are exactly the same labor pools that are helping build that demand. So manufacturing, uh, construction, those tend to compete with trucking for jobs. So we have this scenario where the very industries that are creating the demand for drivers are also sort of sucking the drivers away. When you look down the road, I guess literally and figuratively, um, where do you see this industry going from a labor perspective? You know, the 
age, median age of most drivers is in their 40s. We are obviously hearing about driverless cars and automation all the time. So what happens to that workforce? Does it become an automated workforce or does it change in some way that, you know, we haven't predicted yet? We're going to need a driver in that truck probably at least for another 20, 25 years. One of the things that I was always saying was, you know, the one good thing about trucking is you can't outsource it. You you have to have someone haul goods from point A to point B until we get to a point where you have a, a transporter in Star Trek. Um, but actually, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the case. But someone coming in now who's, say, 22, 23 years old, you know, I think they can easily depend on being able to have a job into their 50s. So it it doesn't necessarily need to be an impediment to anyone getting into the industry. This sort of tight labor market right now, how long do you think this is going to last? How long are we going to have a trucker shortage? Well, the trucker shortage is going to last, um, frankly, as long as freight demand stays strong because there isn't much that's going to increase the supply very dramatically. We had uh, a record level of truck orders in the first quarter, and there probably are not yet drivers to fill those trucks. So a lot of carriers are are betting that their recruiting efforts are going to pay off. Avery Weiss from FTR Transportation Intelligence, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Lizzie. stay with trucking now, sort of. Throughout this year, we're examining how the financial crisis altered this country as part of our project Divided Decade. People's lives changed in the aftermath, in big ways and small. For this next installment, we hear from 21-year-old Victoria Bateman. She's a truck driver, and we caught up with her while she was on the road, which is why you might hear a little noise in the background. I think just the ramifications of 2008 really just struck at me when I was in college and when I noticed that, yeah, this isn't the same economy, that you can't just get a college degree and you have a job lined up like my grandfather actually kind of suggested to me. The plan in college was for me to be very minimum of student loans, but me being transgender and me suffering from mental illness, I failed completely freshman year, and the school and the government pretty much took away the main bulk of my student aid. And so I owe Ole Miss about $30,000, but I'm the only one in my family so far to get a four-year degree, and I have like 30 cousins. I want to go to grad school, but I don't have the money, and... I can barely find a small part-time job where I can use my name and be out as myself because when I put on an application, my name is Victoria, but my legal name is this name, and that presents an obstacle. If I go there and then they find out that I'm transgender, I think that would be not so great for me. And so, like right now, I'm truck driving. Truck driving, I don't need to be out because I don't speak to my manager. I text my manager. I can be who I want to be on the road. And truck driving pays $1,000 with really good insurance, which I needed. 
Most truck drivers are nicer and more courteous than people who aren't truck drivers. I found that surprising because they seem to mind their own business and are just so used to just driving. And they kind of understand all the other truck drivers where we're kind of just lonely out on the road. I didn't really want to do truck driving. I still kind of don't. I just feel kind of trapped by this financial weight and I just don't want to be caught off guard. Right now I'm hauling beer and beer is heavy and it's annoying, but I know for a fact that if a financial crisis happens, I'll still be in the job. (laughs) (laughs) You can see a photo of Victoria Bateman on Instagram. We're at Marketplace APM. And you can let us know how the financial crisis changed you with the hashtag HowWeChanged. As we mentioned earlier, it has been a decade since the financial crisis, and a lot of us can still feel its effects. But there are places in the country where you can actually see them, places where houses got stuck in a sort of foreclosure limbo and years later still haven't come out. Now thousands of them sit deserted. As part of our project, Divided Decade, Marketplace's Mariel Seguera went to Long Island, where there are more of these homes than any other place in the country. Hi, Mariel. Hi, Lizzie. Tell me a little bit about the neighborhoods that you went out to see. So I went to a few towns on Long Island. One of them that sticks out was Roosevelt. It's about 45 minutes by train from Manhattan. It's actually named after the former president, Teddy, not FDR. Uh, And a bunch of famous people are from there, weirdly. The rappers Chuck D and Flava Flav, Howard Stern, Eddie Murphy. And, you know, it's a suburb. It's got small lots with lots of two-story houses, some of them really cute with brick or shingles. But then on almost every block, you see an abandoned, broken-down house. Uh, Plywood over the front windows and doors, weeds growing on the front lawn. I remember one house had this busted-up green SUV out front. Its headlight was smashed. Its airbags were deployed. And this scene is pretty common on Long Island. And a lot of these abandoned houses are what's known as zombie homes. So zombie homes is this term that feels like a legacy of the financial crisis. Um, And we remember them from that moment. But what are they now? What are these zombie homes? They're houses that got stuck in the foreclosure process and then abandoned. And they're still sitting there empty. So back in the early years of the 2000s, you remember, home values were soaring and it was easy to get a mortgage. You know, the banks were giving out loans to people who couldn't always afford them. And then the economy collapses, millions of people can't pay those mortgages, and foreclosures skyrocket. Um, The thing is, foreclosure is a complicated process. There are legal proceedings, and there's lots of paperwork. And all of that got more complicated after the crisis. The courts were backed up. Also, banks had been really sloppy with their record keeping. So the average foreclosure took a year, and then it took two, and eventually three And the housing market didn't recover. So some banks walked away from these houses. Foreclosure Mm. was more trouble than the homes were worth. And then the the homeowners also walked away at the same time. Right. So until a foreclosure is final, the borrower is responsible for the house. But a lot of people didn't know that. And they left. I talked to Linda Fisher from Seton Hall Law School. 
Oftentimes, once uh, homeowners get a notice of foreclosure, they don't understand what's going on, and uh, they think that uh, they have to get out immediately or the bank owns the home immediately. And people left for other reasons, too, you know, because they were ashamed or because their lives moved on. They got a job in another place and left. And that's how we got zombie homes. There were almost 50,000 of them by 2013. And they were clustered in states like New Jersey, Florida, New York, where there are lots of protections for homeowners. So foreclosures take the longest. When you're in these neighborhoods, what effect does having zombie homes have on them? Well, they're obviously an eyesore, but it's more than that. I I talked to Natalie Gary. She grew up in Roosevelt and owns a home there. If you wanted to sell your home, you you wouldn't get a good value if you got an abandoned home next door. In some cases, squatters also move into these houses. I went to Massapequa, another town, about 10 miles from Roosevelt. It's on the water. It's got beach clubs and docks and big homes with landscaped yards. And there are zombie homes there, too. Some of them had telltale signs of squatters, like broken glass, empty liquor bottles, um, abandoned shopping carts. I talked to Bill Manton from the local Civic Association. They don't maintain the houses. There's no, there's no incentive for them to, to maintain it. To, they don't own it. So why would they? They're only interested in having a roof over their head. So this is obviously a quality of life issue, too. Um you know, obviously, it's a property value issue. And so I'm curious that it costs these towns money as well. Yeah, towns often have to pay to maintain these houses. Uh, they go on the property, cut the lawn, cut back the trees. I sat down with Joseph Saladino, supervisor for the town of Oyster Bay, which includes Massapequa. He said all that can cost between 500 and $3,000. And that's just one house, one time. So this year, Oyster Bay actually passed a law. It requires banks to pay the town $25,000 for maintenance on each of their zombie homes. We reduced the need for our taxpayers to pay for the upkeep of these homes. And their rightful responsible party, the banks, the mortgage companies, now have to be responsible for these costs. The town's gotten nine checks so far. Wow. And other towns and states are trying to deal with zombies, too. They've passed laws, for instance, to speed up the foreclosure process. Um, Is is this working? Is it having an effect? To an extent. uh, The number of zombie homes has dropped by 70 percent in recent years. But there are still about 14,000 of them around the country. Marketplace's Marielle Segarra, thank you so much. Thank you. And you can watch a video that Marielle made about zombie homes, and you can see them there. Just go to our website, marketplace.org. going to turn to a different kind of housing story. Since Hurricane Maria ravaged Puerto Rico in September, thousands of people have fled the island to come to the mainland. Many of them, some 1,600 families, have been staying at hotels, paid for by FEMA's Transitional Shelter Assistance Program. But the program will expire at the end of June. In Florida, about 600 families are in the program. Many in the Orlando area are working with community groups and churches to try to figure out what's next. That includes the Episcopal Church of Jesus of Nazareth in Orlando. Father Jose Rodriguez is the rector there. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So with the people you're working with, what happens on July 1st, um, you know, when the deadline rolls around? 
Um, actually, it's what happens on June 30th, because mm. on June 30th is when they have to start checking out of their hotel rooms. Some of them will have to go out of pocket to stay in the hotels. Many of them will go on out into the streets looking for shelters. All the shelters are full. And some of them may go couch surfing, and many will be sleeping in their cars that evening. What are they telling you right now? They've found jobs. They've gotten cars. They've survived this horrible disaster in Puerto Rico. It just hasn't been enough time for them to resettle in a new place. Do, do they plan to stay in Orlando in the area, or are they thinking, you know what, we might go back to the island at some point? Um, we keep track of about 300 families, and the vast majority plan on staying. Mm. They're here because they have nothing to go back to. Given that they've already found jobs here, given that they've already established themselves here, given that they have nothing to go back to, they'd rather face homelessness here than back on the island. You know, Orlando already had, as you know, a, a big affordable housing problem prior to the storm and, and prior to, you know, an influx of new residents. Um, are there longer-term housing solutions that people can afford? Or if not, what do you see as the right path forward? The right path forward would be transition assistance. Um, that is within FEMA's power without any additional legislation. All FEMA did was extend a deadline, but they provided nothing to get the families from the hotel room into self-sufficiency. Sadly, if you go to the Kissimmee area where a lot of the families have been placed, they've been placed on the 192 stretch of hotels. There was actually a movie made about that area called The Florida Project. These families were put in a place that was already having challenges with housing. They're not making enough money to qualify for apartments. Basically, they have two options, either fall off a cliff on June 30th or fly back to Puerto Rico to more uncertainty. That's the only thing FEMA offered them is June 30th, we'll give you a ticket back home. But most people don't have a home to go to. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I want to play devil's advocate here. You know, FEMA is saying we will pay your way back. Governor Rosseo is saying, please come back to the island. We need more people for economic development and recovery. And it's been nine months. D does FEMA have a point that, you know, at some point, its assistance can only be temporary? Yeah, they can go back to Puerto Rico. Yeah, they can go back to rebuilding the island. But what are they going back to? Puerto Rico was already in a crisis before the hurricane. The island is worse off now after nine months of recovery than it was before we're in the middle of hurricane season. Most reasonable people with children, they're not going to take their children back to that. And we're not acknowledging the fact that as U.S. citizens, they have the power and the ability and the right to move wherever they choose to move. The federal agency that's in charge of helping them is a federal agency. They're there to serve U.S. citizens. And instead of helping them reestablish their lives elsewhere in this country, they're trying to put them back in Puerto Rico. This has all meant that tremendous burdens um, have fallen on churches like yours, on community organizations. How has this played out in terms of what you do every day, both you know emotionally and financially? This has been very difficult on us financially. Um, I am the rector of a small Hispanic parish very proud, strong parish. But our financial situation is limited. Um, we've had to fundraise 20 times our annual budget just to get to the point where we are today serving families. Interesting enough, we've gotten no help from government in helping these families. We've really been out there in the community hustling for these families because someone has to do it. I would love to return back to the day where I'm sitting in my parish office dealing with day-to-day -day church business. I'm out there 
organizing people. I'm out there helping people make rent. I'm out there helping people navigate through government bureaucracy. I'm out there doing a job that far extends beyond my role as a um, provider of spiritual care. These families have been pretty much put in hotels, warehoused, and forgotten. No one's actually gone and helped these families relocate, navigate bureaucracy other than community organizations. Father Jose Rodriguez is the rector at Episcopal Church of Jesus of Nazareth in Orlando. Thank you so much. Thank you. Earlier, you heard about what it's like to be a trucker. Now we're going to hear about a different career path. It's part of our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. This time around, How to Be a Composer, with an Academy Award-nominated expert. My name is Carter Burwell. I am a composer of music for films. Composer is kind of a, um, a big word. I started as just being a, a musician. Got together with some friends from college and started playing in bands, punk rock bands, things like that. Even if we were making things up, we would never have dreamt of calling ourselves composers. But after I worked on my first film, which was Blood Simple with the Coen brothers, uh, your title comes up on the screen and it says composer. So that, as of that day, I guess I was a composer. This has now become a career. It was never something I intended to do. The business is, of course, different. I have an agent. People book me a year or more in advance sometimes to work on their films. Technologically, what's changed is that uh, everything takes place inside of computers. The film itself is in a computer. It's been edited in a computer. It's been shot digitally. And I can synchronize my musical notes to within you know, a frame or you know, theoretically a fraction of a frame of the picture so I can weave the music between lines of dialogue and it's all very exacting and I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to this so I I enjoy all of that. (laughs) For myself usually the first part of the process is uh, is getting a script but typically I don't even though I read the script and we'll have a conversation based on the script I don't actually write notes of music generally until they've shot the film and I've seen something uh, in a way, what I'm really looking for is to see what's missing. Uh, I, when I see the film, I'm thinking, well, what's not there that the music could bring? Then I'll typically sit at the piano, and that's where, because that's my most comfortable instrument, that's where I'll develop some melodies, harmonies, general thematic ideas. You could take the same melody and play it on clarinet, play it on a cello, play it on electric guitar or piano, and it would have different effects. It feels different. They all um, bring out these emotions and memories in, in us when we hear them. And when you put it against a movie, those emotions then change the movie. And that's an important part of my job. It's an interesting test of a film to see how well it works without music. I think the best films typically do. But of course, I'm glad that they <laughs> still want some music in their films. And the, you know, a lot of the filmmakers that I work with are they're prepared for the idea that music's going to bring a thing that maybe they didn't anticipate. Um, and uh, that's, that takes some trust on their part that I'm going to you know, come to their film, which is, as you say, sort of naked without music, 
and whatever I add is going to change it. One of the things that you know I've noticed, and a lot of the directors that I work with have noticed, is that you pretty much know right away. The first spark is either there or it isn't, and we put the melody against the picture, and either it's working or it isn't, and we almost always know instantaneously. It is like a crush, because there's some kind of magic there. This story was produced by Eliza Mills. As you've likely heard, Marketplace Weekend will end production on June 29th, but not before we bring you a special shaped by our listeners. Next week, we delve into the economics of disability through the lenses of education. As we know, not all schools have the same resources. And often, schools will make recommendations based on what they can provide and where their expertise is. So the more unique your disability is, the more likelihood that a school doesn't know how to appropriately educate your child. There's still a huge achievement gap between students with disabilities in New York City and general education students. With state standardized tests, ELA and and math, the proficiency rates are only 10 and 12%. This is unacceptable. Healthcare? It takes a while to kind of get comfortable in your own skin again, and your body works differently. And I went through a period of time where I felt ashamed of my disability and I felt embarrassed. I think when you start getting active again and and also being just in the disability community it really made me feel strong again and confident and I I began to love my body and how it moved and yeah it worked a little differently for me but that was okay and employment if I had had uh, accommodations that I'd asked for My job performance would have been better, and I think that I would have stayed employed. I certainly wanted to stay employed. I realized at some point that the whole whole thing was to fire me, to get rid of me. You know, when I did ask for accommodations, I wouldn't get them. It was the only choice I had was to go out on disability or be fired, and disability was a better choice. But it's a real decrease in, in lifestyle and everything else. So tune in on your local station or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the conversation next week on Twitter. We're at Marketplace or on Instagram. Just look for at Marketplace APM. And that is it for the show this week. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Liza Mills, Peter Ballinon-Rosen, with help this week from Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.